Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow us on social media at Day Beautiful on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's guest is the author of the poetry collection For the Love of Endings, which was named one of Adroit's best poetry books of the year in 2018. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, Slate, Poetry, Kenyon Review, Tin House, and elsewhere. He holds degrees from Harvard and NYU, where he was a New York Times fellow. He is the editor of Backdraft, a Guinerica interview series focused on revision and the creative process. His debut novel, The Men Can't Be Saved, is out now. Please welcome Ben Perkert. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Um, before we even start talking about you and your book, I also, I, well, I guess this is about you. Uh, you are the editor of Backdraft on Guinerica Magazine, which I feel is like the adult version of what Day Beautiful is trying to do, talking about craft, talking about the process. Um, I guess just talk about that a little bit, like your process of how you dive into that, how, what you, what interests you about craft so much? Yeah. So I think it's largely a selfish interest, Mm -hmm. um, for anyone who hasn't read backdraft, it's a, an interview series where we look at like a writer's first draft and then compare it with the final. And sometimes there's massive edits and sometimes it's barely touched at all. And, And both are interesting. You just get to hear the author, sort of talk out loud about what their process is. I wrote the first draft of this novel very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then I needed to figure out like, what the hell do I do with it? It was just this bloody, messy, I'd like to think kind of beautiful, weird thing that was on my desk. And because my background is not in fiction, it's in poetry. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel equipped to edit it. Like I felt equipped to write it, which is weird and maybe a bit delusional, but I don't know. I, I just needed more revision chops. And so backdraft that interview series was, that's why I say selfish. It was out of my own need to learn how to revise better. And you can't get a PhD in revision, which is frankly mm-hmm. what I would love to have done, right? Just go deep for six or seven years on, on revision as a practice, but I couldn't do that. So I thought, well, maybe there's a magazine that will empower me and uh, enable me to just talk to my favorite writers about how they do that revision work. So I'd like to think that it, it taught me something. Yeah. And the first interview in that series was 2018. I guess, yeah, we should talk about your book too, as well, more in depth. I should introduce it. But were you writing this book back in 2018? Yeah. Yeah, I was. So I, you know, it's it's hard for me to date exactly when this book began because when mm-hmm. I was working the book is about a copywriter at a branding agency. I worked as a copywriter at a branding agency the whole time I was taking notes and, you know, thinking of of certain things that I wanted to maybe file away and play with later. So it's hard to backdate it exactly, but I would say I had a rough draft of this novel in 2014 ish. So by 2018, I was already, I, I, I needed to learn how to revise at that point. Yeah. Definitely. And the book where you have alluded to, but not yet named is The Men Can't Be Saved, um, which is will be out by the time people listen to this podcast. Um, so we'll dive into the long journey. But I do always ask, what's the book about from your perspective? What is your elevator pitch as opposed to the publicists or the media? Yeah. So the main character is Seth, 
And he's written a tagline that has gone viral. Granted, it's for an obscure brand of men's adult diapers, but be that as it may, he's really high on his own shit. And he thinks he's going to be partner at his agency basically any day now. And he's delusional. And so we sort of get the fun and maybe a bit of the tragedy of watching this really cocky guy experience a downfall. And as he struggles to kind of like get his professional life back, he's laid off, he gets addicted to pills. He has he has a winding journey. In my mind, the, the interesting question about Seth is not just will he recover his professional status that like that's one like that that for Mm -hmm. him is his main objective but i don't think that's the heart of the book i think the heart of the book is is he trying to sincerely pursue an arc of redemption or is he ultimately just trying to rebrand himself and you know that question of to what extent is he at fault and does he need to make amends or reparations for certain mistakes that he's made. Like, I think that that's an open question for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love the book. I, I I was thinking a lot about it. I just got back from vacation and I brought it with me not to reread, but just like, I guess reread certain passages and think about the book. And I think a lot of like my like school career, like K through 12 was built on like, just being like a cocky white guy who like not bullied teachers, but like I was like, hey, I'm I deserve this, like sort of thing. And I think that's a lot. That's like a a product of just like the culture I grew up in and that we grow up in. But I really like loved how like he, yeah, is he going to redeem himself? Does he even want to, or does he just want like the clouts, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just really interesting to think about like just white men in general, you know, like and how we interact with society throughout your book. Um, you mentioned that you were a copy editor, copywriter. Um, as is he, I'm assuming that's where the similarities end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always hard. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. fiction is fiction, right? So I want to preserve that distinction and he makes, I mean, my character's a mess, right? He he like, I don't want to ruin things for the reader, but let's just say he's very much at fault for, for what happens to him. I think in in a variety of fronts, um, so, you know, I, part of the joy of writing the book was that his life goes in this direction that is completely foreign from mine, right? Mm-hmm. So on some level, I'm I'm free to admit that we start in a similar place. The agency where he works is very similar to the yeah. agency. A lot of like the, eccentric, the eccentricities and the toxicity and like the sex and the, the just like the messiness of working at a creative agency in, in New York, like that definitely is pulled from um, certain witnessing, I would say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah, then he, you know, the fun thing for me about writing fiction is you have this character and he doesn't start out as real. And then he starts walking around on the page and you kind of just follow him, you know? Yeah. And this is a really dumb question, but like, was it fun writing someone who just made so many mistakes and like things you would never do? Or is it stressful? (laughs) No, no, it was fun. It was fun. I, I, I mean, I think the cool thing about fiction, and there's a million cool things, yeah. but one of the things that I just love is you get to try on the the clothes of another life. You mm-hmm. know, what would have happened if I had said yes that time when I said no? What would have happened if I had turned right in my life instead of you know instead of left or whatever it is? And using the novel as a as a as a way of sort of 
exploring those rabbit holes or whatever you want to call them. That's, that's fun. But also, you know, as the book goes on, it becomes less about the writer and it just, it, it needs by necessity to become about the character's lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, you alluded to this already, you know, with when we talked about backdraft and how you needed to learn how to edit and want to get a, you know, quote unquote PhD in editing and revision, um, was writing it, was getting that first draft out easy for you? It was. Yeah. It was, it was too easy. And that's the thing is, I mean, maybe it's because I'm an anxious dude, but Mm -hmm. whenever the writing is going well, I'm like, wait a minute. Like I'm the prairie dog, like looking around the field, like where's the coyote? Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I'm being sick because this writing is too hard. It should not come easy. And yeah. that first draft just poured out of me, but I was wary. Mm-hmm. And I think I was right to be wary because it, it needed so much love. Having said that, it was a joy ride. You know, mm-hmm. I think that whole thing about write, drunk, revise, sober, like that, that, that is sort of how I think it I don't want to say should, because I don't want to be prescriptive to anyone, but I do think that is sort of how it should feel. That first draft needs to just like come quickly and be wet and weird. And then, you know, later you kind of like sober up and and do the harder work. Yeah. How do you, you might not be able to answer this with words, but how do you know when writing is going well, like just the speed of it? The honest truth is I don't, for me, I don't know until time has passed. Sure. Like when a draft, when the ink is not dry yet, like I need that ink really dry. Yeah. I, I, need, I need to put the, a, a large part of the time in me working on this book was not working on it. It was, I teach it at Rutgers. So it was mm-hmm. syllabi or looking at student work. And then after a few months had passed, Hey, let me reread my novel. Or I work on poems that I, I try to get published and, you know, I'll work on poems for a few months and then I'll go back to the novel. So once, once it has, sat in a drawer for a good while, then I think I have some objective distance, but I don't think, you know, I mean, may, some writers, I guess, do know, but I'm not, I'm not that guy. Sometimes I'll think in the process of writing, oh man, this is really going well right now. And then yeah. four months later, I'll be like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. With uh saved, do you remember like the first time you went back and like what worked and what didn't work from that first, first draft? There's a lot that didn't work, but mm-hmm. I think that what has always worked and what has always come most naturally to me and the parts that I've just enjoyed the most are writing the scenes between Seth and Moon. Mm-hmm. For anyone who hasn't read the book yet, um, Seth and Moon are both problematic male characters, but in very different ways. Seth overthinks everything. He's incredibly neurotic. He's incredibly self-centered, but he also hates himself pretty deeply. He's, he's really insecure. Whereas Moon is just all ego, all bravado. He's just like the loudest guy at the party. He's the Roger Sterling, if you remember Mad Men. Like that's just mm-hmm. who he is, right? Um, he's an asshole, but he's successful. And putting them in scenes together and letting them just bounce off each other was a joy because there's so much hatred between them, but there's also so much homoeroticism and I love those like succession scenes of Tom and Greg, where you just, you feel these two egos in a room and they are um, at war with each other, but in love with each other at the same time. So that, that that just, I was like, I I loved writing those, those parts from the very beginning. 
Yeah, definitely. What were the parts that were like tricky for you or that took a while to, to figure out through revision? The beginning, mm. the beginning. I mean, I rewrote the first page. I want to say I spent as much time on the first two pages as I spent on the entire book. Like I just, I just rewrote so many times the opening Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, if I had understood how fiction worked better, like all, like I said, right, all my background is in poetry. And so something relatively simple for a fiction writer, the distinction between habitual time versus scene time, like, you know, the idea that you could lay, like give, give your reader the lay of the land of what the agency looks like in a habitual way before touching down in scene. If I had mm-hmm. understood even the way in which times can shift and you can shift register, maybe I wouldn't have like punched my head through a wall so many years there, but that, that was the part that I really had to manage. Like where, like where do I want the reader to touch down in Seth's life was a question that I just labored over for a long, long time. Yeah. Do you remember, I guess the moment that clicked when you, you figured out, how that the reader would touch down in Seth's life? It was for me, the voice. Hmm. So that first line is I'm tempted to lie, of course. And once I landed on that, it just like, I, I knew that if I got the voice right, the rest would sort of click into place. Mm-hmm. That was also the fun of writing a first person narrative is that you get to you're not really telling a story. You're telling someone's mental experience of their own story. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the idea of all first person narrators are unreliable narrators. Right. You know, there's no, right. there's no ultimate fact. Do yeah. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, so I was for backdraft. I interviewed Antoine Wilson. Did you mm-hmm. read mouth to mouth? Do you know that book? No, I know it. I haven't read it though. It's really good. And interviewing him, I was talking to him and he said this thing that I'll always remember. He said that when you read a book in the first person, you're really reading the character's PR department. Like that's like, that's what there's, those are like the press releases that they're putting out, you know, how they see the world and what you want to think. It's not the same as objective reality. Mm -hmm. When he said that, I was like, Ooh, that's really good. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. I, I love the idea of even how, um, first person narration like if they're describing someone's like i like to think and and i think most readers do it's like are are they really do they look like that even like you know something like superficial that doesn't affect a plot but it's like is this person attractive or not and does it matter um yeah did you know this book was always going to be first person then yeah yeah Yeah, i think so i don't think there's a i don't think it works otherwise because Mm -hmm. we just being in his head is the is the maddening thing about this book and i think that um trying to kind of figure out like what makes him tick and and why is he the way that he is like what is it about either masculinity or about his spiritual self that makes him this way i think first person is where it needs to live yeah and i um you mentioned like poetry is that was your background and and what you honed before attempting to write this what um what skills were you able to like bring to the novel writing from your poetry yeah so and we were talking before um we started recording about 
our mutual friend Ruth Mayevsky, whose yeah. poetry is amazing and whose novel All All Night Pharmacy is is just amazing. I think poets and you know Ruth and I both of our novels are coming out roughly the same time, and we mm-hmm. both have three collections that came out around the same time. Yeah. So she and I talk a lot about poets writing novels and what that looks like, and I think that you know I. I arrived at the novel well-equipped with certain tools that only work on a smaller scale. So it's it's sort of uncomfortable to talk about as a writer what you do well, but I would like to think that on my best day, I'm really good with metaphor. I would like mm-hmm. to think that on my best day, I'm really good with imagery because those are things I've been working on forever. But the scale of a novel is just unbelievable. And Aria Aber, the poet, um, tweeted this thing a couple of years ago that I've never forgotten, which is that as a poet, you're basically, you've got like your little nail scissors, right? Like that that's the scale at which you're used to operating. And with a novel, you're now trying to trim an entire front lawn or like mm-hmm. a or like Central Park or something. It's just, it takes a long, long time. So a lot of my favorite novels are novels that are written by poets or even someone like Garth Greenwell, who's not really a poet, but started out with a poetry background. If I'm reading a novel and it doesn't have that attention to language, like early on, I'm, I'm probably going to check out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I talk a lot about the vibe um, with, with what I like to read. Um, and I don't really talk about language too much, but part of it is like the language needs to make me feel something like I'm involved in the story um yeah I definitely think your book did that I think Seth's voice is one of the best first person narrators I'm trying to think I mean in a while obviously I'm saying it but I'm trying to think of who my favorites are and it's just like you really nailed something with this um and like you said it's uncomfortable to talk about like what writers what you're good at right but like did you when did you know you nailed his voice with that first line or like like because that took a while but when did you know like this is it well I think you know as a writer I'm always doubting so it's hard to I'm not I like I wish I had more of those decisive moments of victory you know like I'm a I'm a big basketball fan and it's so great when a team wins like you know you've won there's no (laughs) no question mark around it the the referees aren't shrugging at the end and sometimes with writing, it's like, I think I won. Like, I hope I didn't lose. I, you know, I don't, there's no one telling you really. Yeah. yeah. And your your own psyche will do everything possible to tell you that you haven't won, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reason I mentioned that first line is because it kind of tells us a lot of, I, I'm one of those people who I do think the first sentence of a story needs to kind of tell the whole story or, or sort of summarize something central. Mm-hmm. And that first line of the book, I'm tempted to lie, comma, of course. Like to me, that of course is sort of like the comedy of Seth, like why he's so absurd, as if everyone is the way that he is, as if everyone is so deceitful. And even that line, a, a word like tempted, which has a kind of religious connotation and maybe hints at like the sort of devilish side of him or or moon, like something is something is off. Like, why don't you just tell the truth, dude? Like, why are you tempted to lie? I never even met you, right? This is the opening of a novel and this is what you're confessing to me, but it's mm-hmm. also sort of naive and honest. Um, so a line like that, I just, 
it's exciting because it feels like I'm really inhabiting this guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as you went through revision, I, now I can't remember what we talked about. You you mentioned how before we were recording, you mentioned how Ruth, who we just discussed, and and you kind of worked on not worked on each other's books, but yeah, like edited, revised, helped, guided, whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, what was that like working with a writer through revision who's not like your agent or your editor? It was pure. That's mm -hmm. correct. I mean, I think that, and I, you know. I love my agent, Aliyah, if you're listening, you're the best. I love my editor, Zach, if you're listening, you're also the best. But sometimes the best editor is a person you, with whom you have no formal relationship. So Ruth, I've admired Ruth's poems for years. I've had her on my syllabus for years. And I think, you know, we connected over Twitter. Like I think mm -hmm. I just started DMing and, um, to be clear, I DM'd her first. So let me just put that out there. <laughs> um, and, and we just became really close friends to the point where uh, I wanted to read her book. And, you know, she asked for some notes and I gave her notes and then she gave me notes on mine. And, and we were finding agents around the same time. And her book is just so good. And it's been fun to share in those successes together and kind of move through this journey together. Because writing is so isolating so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just kind of on your own island. And being able to bounce off edits with someone else with whom, again, you don't have that formal relationship, it's actually, I think, pretty liberating. Yeah. And and the I want to bring up the idea of like writers groups. Are you also in one with like writers who aren't your editors and it's more informal? Uh, are you also in something like that? I'm not. Okay. I'm not. Yeah. I'm sort of like a... Because I... I really wait a long time before showing someone else. Yeah. And my sense of those groups, I mean, there's like every different kind of group and mm -hmm. I think they're awesome for people for whom they work, but I feel like there is this ethos of like, let's get together on Saturday and, and like write together and then yeah. we're going to share it with each other real quick. And I don't know that those are the conditions under which I do my best work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was going to ask like the difference between that and like a relationship with like an internet friend like Ruth, but uh, and you have already answered that. I do find it fascinating though, the idea of being lonely and and writing is lonely, and you don't know if you're winning or losing, or if it's a blowout or a buzzer beater, or you're just losing. Yeah. Um, and ha having someone, I just, I just, I'm trying to, you know, nail home the idea of. Yeah, people should like have people in their lives. You know, for young writers, if they're listening to this, or new writers, find someone. This kind of the reoccurring theme I hear with other writers. You know, yeah. Well, I, to to weigh in on that briefly, I mean, I think you're on Twitter or X or whatever the fuck we're supposed to. Call yeah, it. Uh, <laughs> that's gonna really date this. When we recorded this, it was like the day after Elon Musk went crazy for the 18th exactly. time. Yes, okay. Exactly. Um, so yeah. if you're on X or Twitter, go ahead. Or whatever Sorry, it's called okay. now. Maybe it's like the platform formerly known as X at this point. Um, but like one of the things about, you know, Twitter, right, is like we just, we have the same discourses, the same fights, and then we just recycle them. And one mm -hmm. of favorite ones among writers is the MFA debate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do you need an MFA? Do you not, do you not need an MFA? And it's all, it's like always boring, right? Everyone just rehashes the same sides. But I, I always feel like that's not really the, the debate. Like the debate is, 
we need community and because yeah. writing is so isolating. And so if an MFA is going to be that community for you, that's amazing. But if you can find that community elsewhere, like that's equally amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever you need to do, whatever you can afford, like however you can put your voice in conversation with other voices, both for the sake of your writing, but also even more for the sake of your humanity, mm -hmm. that's where you need to be. So if you are listening, I, I don't think it's as easy as, and Ruth actually is a great example, right? Like Ruth is one of the best writers I've ever met. She doesn't have an MFA. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Putting yourself in those rooms and in position to be generous with others, like that, that's a huge part of the gig because otherwise you're just alone at midnight with your laptop. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I was just back in my hometown, which is kind of dying off. Um, uh, just, you know, like uh, what's a brain drain? A lot of like young people have left. It's a lot of the old heads still there. But I was thinking a lot just about how Amazon and twitter it's like killed small towns in america in many ways in my opinion like a lot like took technology but like with your students do you see and I don't, you don't need to be prescriptive of all of them but do you see like the idea of like their vision of humanity is different than yours than your parents like how we interact with each other oh that's that's an interesting <laughs> i mean i'm you know listen my students speak their own language and yeah. you know, it's, it's a blessed thing that they do. And I don't yeah. profess to, to understand or even be fluent in that language all the time. I think that COVID really messed with our sense of community. Mm -hmm. and I think that I'm not the only teacher who feels that way. Like a lot of professors that I talked to, the classroom just changed, mm -hmm. you know, everyone went dark for two years for the most part. And we've kind of crawled out of our holes and now we're back together. But some of those impromptu conversations that would have just happened in prior classrooms, I'm finding I'm, I'm having to work a whole lot harder to facilitate them. Yeah. Um, sometimes you walk into the classroom and there's five students there and they're just all on their phones. Like none of them are making eye contact. There's no camaraderie that's being built in those moments. And I don't know if that's generational so much as it is like the pandemic has changed. However, like isolated we were from one another before, I think mm. it has only deepened that in a, in a pretty significant way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I know this has nothing to do with your book, but now we're in the life section of Day Beautiful. Yeah, I, I my co a cousin that I was visiting back home teaches computers at a college or computer science or I'm not a computer guy, right? And he's like, I... Yeah similar to writing like his field is very isolated like you're on a computer all day like you're not face to face with people and he was saying with his students he start he did in person like oral exams basically mm. which isn't something like his field would ever do but he's like I have to like these kids have to talk and and this like even like his adult students etc anyway it's been on my mind and you're just getting a, a brain dump of things that are on my mind because I just got back from good. vacation um that's good uh your book 2018 roughly met people online revision you you referenced your agent and your editor when what were like the final edits what were the final revisions that that needed to happen before it became finalized yeah so there's not a whole lot of backstory to Seth like mm -hmm. I think 
I think that different um, different readers have different taste for backstory. I, my personal preference, like, did did you watch Succession? Are you a fan of the show or no? Uh, I know enough about it, and it's, I have not like caught up, but I like know the ending and stuff. Okay, so so I so, know. Yes, go ahead, Th- throw it at me. Well, well, one of the things is like so Logan Roy, like the mm-hmm. the legend, right? The Rupert Murdoch equivalent. Um, all we know about him is that like there's this one scene that lasts two seconds where you see these scars on his back, and it's like the implication is that he was abused or beaten in some capacity as a child, and it never we never get it flashbacks. We never get, and I. I loved how that was rendered. It felt like such a light touch. I sometimes struggle a bit with books that are trying to backload like so many, so many paragraphs of backstory. And so I, Seth had almost no backstory. I liked the idea that he just arrived as this blank slate and Zach, my editor, you know, he liked that too. And he let Seth be the character that he needed to be, but there were just a few moments where he would, he encouraged me to maybe dilate a little bit and see if I could dig up some elements of this character's past. And I love that ask. It was a great ask because again, it didn't make a huge difference, but there are four or five paragraphs that I could point to that now tell stories about Seth from before the the point of telling from before the, the novel technically begins. And those are some of my favorites now. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then you, you've alluded to what type of books that interest you and don't interest you. And usually I warn writers that I'll ask this, but like, what are some books like titles or just authors that are like, you know, Ben favorites? Such a weird eclectic mix. I love it. I got really deep into the novels of Iris Murdoch. I don't know if you know her work at all, but the sea, the sea is, is amazing. The bell. I like even better. Um, Ben Lerner is the writer who made me want to try fiction. He was one of my favorite poets. And then after leaving the Atocha station came out, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to try. He made it seem so effortless and his, his fiction. I, I, I still love. Um, he had a short story in the New Yorker cafe Lou about a guy who's thinks he's choking to death in a restaurant, but of course he's fine. And we're just, we inhabit his consciousness for those 10 seconds of choking. And it, sounds like the most boring story, but somehow it feels thrilling. So yeah, I read, I read a ton of poetry, poetry and translation helps me, Mm. but uh, it's a mix. It's a mix. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still writing poetry? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I find it helpful to go back and forth. For sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've asked this before. And I'll ask it again because I asked the same questions because like, that's what I'm interested in. Um, are you able to, I know you you mentioned going back and forth, but are you able to write prose and poetry on the same day or the same mindset? Or how do you switch between the two? And and how do you, how do you manage all that? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm struggling with it now because mm-hmm. I find poetry very easy to dip in and out of. Mm. That to me, I won't say it's one of the joys, but it's one of the, because poetry's joys are, are much deeper and richer than that, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. one of its conveniences for sure. Like I can just dip into this poetry manuscript as soon as we're done and I won't, um, it, it, it won't feel like a, like a big to do. Whereas 
what I have found with writing a novel, and I don't know about short stories because that's not, I've never even really attempted the form, but mm-hmm. with a novel, I need to get into character almost. Like I need to reread the entire draft. I need to like absorb, I, it, it's like a, I don't know, it's like method acting or something. Yeah. Like I, it, it's not just, I can't, literally I've been on the bus writing poems and that has never, or on my phone even, and that has never felt inorganic or challenging. Whereas I really need to set the thermostat to the perfect temperature to try to recreate the conditions of the novel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious then, um, and we don't have to talk about plot or anything like that, but have you been working on a second novel? And, and if so, were you able to work on it within the same mindset of when you're doing publicity or edits or whatever for men who can't be saved? Yeah. So I I've started something. I mean, it's so early. It's not yeah. even what I'm talking about, but I think like this summer I've just committed, committed myself to going all in on, on this book, right? Yeah. Like men can't be saved. Took me a decade. And I, there was a time a few months ago where I thought, well, this will be good. Cause I'll, I'll do some publicity stuff and I'll get ready for the semester and I'll also be starting this new novel. And I've needed to just be way kinder to myself and realistic about what gets done. And publishing a book is is like a job. I mean, the, it's just a bunch of emails and it's 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 all exciting, right? But yeah. definitely requires a lot of management. So this book right now needs me and it needs me to kind of usher it out into the world to the best that I can. And then as soon as that's done, I get to go back to the wood shop and get my hands dirty and fuck up and have good days. And I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much to Ben for joining the Debut Beautiful podcast to discuss his debut novel, The Men Can't Be Saved, which is out now. You can find him on the internet at benperkert.com and on Twitter and Instagram at benperkert. Wow, he makes it really easy. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at daybeautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all.